Hey everyone, you're listening to the Vent Podcast, your source for market insights, wine industry news, and updates on our current collections. Enjoy the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Vent Podcast. My name is Brady. As always, I'm joined by Billy. Not in the studio, I always want to say in the studio. I got that from another podcast that I listened to, and they're never actually in studio together, so I thought it would be fitting. Anyways, a few things on the docket today. We have two collections to talk about. One was a whiskey offering that we released the Friday before 4th of July. It was our Kurosawa Geisha collection. It was a $75,000 total value collection. We offered 1,500 shares of that collection at $50 a share. And that offering has since sold out since that launch. And we continue on this path of trying to maintain about 20% whiskey offerings. I don't know, Billy, if you want to go into talking about this offering specifically, but we're really happy to offer more Japanese whiskey as our last Kurosawa collection was met with really strong demand as well. Yeah. So this, I recently listened to a Japanese, another Japanese whiskey podcast and they they said it properly. And I wish I could say it's like Kariyuzawa. They they say it more in that Japanese tone, but Mm -hmm. uh it, it, again, it is one of the most collectible whiskeys in the world as the distillery, as it was known, was closed, stopped distilling in 2001 and basically was demolished in 2016, where the the stills were actually, the building was just demolished. And then the stills were actually sold off to another distillery who uses them now. Shizuoka is what it's called. And they actually produce a whiskey called Prologue K, which is a nod to the Karazawa because it uses their equipment which is a little fun fact. But yeah, this, this Geisha collection is the latest iteration in a series. The Geisha series is now on its seventh part. And I think this is the penultimate part where there'll be eight parts. And every time it's released in pairs, so there are different colors. There's the pearl, which is white. There's a sapphire, which is blue. And there, there are a few others to go along with that. So this was it was great to be able to get these two. There's not currently a, a single pair available in the United States, at least at launch. And... What we're going to continue to do is, you know, Kurzawa, the individual bottles themselves are not only attractive investment assets, at least in recent years, but these pairs, putting things together kind of kind of multiplies a little bit of the possible value in the eyes of a potential collector down the line. So it's nice to be able to put these together. We're working on, you know, sourcing these and whether it be, you know, the Geisha collection or other pieces like the 36 views of Mount Fuji, we're constantly kind of keeping these things in mind. So Kurosawa is excellent. We'll continue to keep our eyes out for additional Japanese whiskeys like Yamazaki or some of the other producers. And yeah, it, it was an exciting day. And again, yeah, this one sold out very quickly. So it's great to see the continued demand for it. I love when we do whiskey offerings because it really drives home why a fractionalized investment platform is is so important and necessary for this asset class. I mean, anyone, not anyone, but most of us can figure out how to afford a $300 bottle of Napa for our investment, you know, portfolio. But, you know, with two bottles at 75,000 of total value, it gets pretty difficult for the average or even the high earning individual to make sense of that for their portfolio. So it's awesome to be able to offer these collections at accessible share prices. I think this is this is tip, this typifies that. So that was cool. And then on July 5th, we launched our Bordeaux Superstars collection, a Magnum collection. So all one and a half liter bottles of top wines from Bordeaux. 
we had stellar vintages 2005, 2009, 2010, 16, 15, featuring Lafitte, Cheval Blanc, Mar- Chateau Margaux, Paul Prion, Mouton Rothschild, all kinds of the, really the, the creme de la creme of Bordeaux and beautiful Magnum bottles. That was a $200,000 collection. We issued 4,000 shares and the price for that again is $50 per share. We've sold through 48% of that offering so far. So there's still plenty left of that collection if you haven't added it to your portfolio. Any Bordeaux offering is going to be a cornerstone of your portfolio. So for folks just getting into Vint, I'm looking to make a first investment. This collection, I mean, I can't really think of an offering just between the producers, the vintages, and the format of the bottles that would be better better for starting a wine collection. We're hoping to have more Bordeaux available on the website kind of continually so that that's always an option for folks when they come to the platform. But Billy, this collection, I think, is probably when you talk about blue chip wines and you talk about building a portfolio around a set of wines, this is probably takes the cake, doesn't it, so far? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I would say for, for multiple reasons. One, we source this directly from negociants. So this wine is resting in Bordeaux. It's never left Bordeaux and it's being stored there. So that's really exciting. And the other two main factors are, one, you touched on the, the number of high quality vintages, but the different vintages. So there's 2002, 2005 parcels. These will have a different exit point or a, a different drinking window than say the 2015s and 16s. So what's interesting about this collection is we, we have pieces that can be exited at different times. And the other, I guess, glaring factor is that they're all in Magnum. The best Bordeaux in the world take their time to age and develop and the best format to really develop and age a wine due to the ratio of liquid to air in the bottle is a Magnum. So Magnums are more sought after of Bordeaux than they are almost any other region. The other two that would be up there with them would be Champagne and Burgundy. And I guess kind of a little bit Napa, but not as much because Napa's wines don't aren't tend to be aged as long as Bordeaux. And what's what's awesome about these is compared to Burgundy, there are more first growth wines produced from each first growth Bordeaux producer each year, but only a fraction of the wines produced are ended up being in Magnum in that format. So what you're doing is you're taking the creme de la creme from the best years, and you're basically creating these, or we we purchased these collections with the Magnums, which are a fraction of what was produced that year in the format that ages them the best. So they're basically some of the most desirable assets for Bordeaux collectors. And we're basically going to keep them until they're either you know, ready to reach their first stage of drinking. You know, every every wine has those, has stages of drinking windows or until they're, you know, ready to hit back on the market at different points. So yeah, no, this is really exciting. And it's our first Magnum only collection, which is, which is really exciting. So I don't think you could do much better. Yeah. And I mean, I challenge people to use or listeners to go to Robert Parker's, the robertparker.com and go to their resource page and check out their vintage chart. This is a great way to compare pricing when you see varied pricing on different marketplaces. Sometimes you'll see differences in pricing because of critic scores or vintage scores for a particular region. And I just want to call out that we really did choose the top vintages for this collection. You know, basically, I was just looking through the chart. All of the vintages that we selected were rated 95 out of 100 and above by Robert Parker, which had been really helpful for me as a just as a consumer to start thinking a little bit 
macro when I'm buying wine about vintages and regions. And I think that one helps to learn about the, you know, to think in the mind of a farmer and a producer in terms of what may happen year to year, but also I think is really helpful to inform decisions that investors make when we can go to a source of of, of truth of sorts to kind of understand the quality in, in a, a given region in a given year. And I think that we've done a good job across all of our collections, but this one especially to make sure that when we're choosing a big name producer to feature, we're also featuring you know their top wines of the last 10, 15 years. I think we d- definitely did that again. Yeah. And two points on that one, actually seven of the eight wines in this collection are rated 98 or better, including 200 point wines. So they are excellent wines. And number two, I will caution anyone if they're using the Robert Parker vintage chart, Bordeaux, it's it's really accurate because it starts to break down the different regions of Bordeaux, but there are certain other regions like Burgundy, it does like a whole Cote de Nuit as a single parcel. And, and there are certain regions where the little the little climats and the little areas have such variation within the little climactic regions that you could have a bad vintage at one or a majority of the Appalachians, but maybe one was able to, you know, avoid frost or avoid other bad weather. So I wouldn't say use it as a blanket, but it's a good guiding and directional tool for getting a sense of the vintage overall. Yeah, that's definitely a good call out. They do break down Bordeaux really tightly, which is, you know, why the vintage chart makes a lot of sense to check that out for Bordeaux. But I was just looking at the California charts and basically just goes North coast, central coast, which, uh, I don't know, Santa, Bar- Santa Barbara versus Paso Robles, Sonoma versus Napa, you know, these are, there are definitely differences in the way the climate settles in those regions. So that's a good point, Billy, to call out. But for Bordeaux, definitely insightful to check out that chart and continue to do that when you, when you see we have Bordeaux offerings on our site. That's definitely a good place to kind of hold us accountable and double check to make sure that we're, you know, we're, we really are sourcing the right stuff. So we kind of danced around 4th of July. We had collection launch on the front end and the back end of the 4th of July weekend. And I know we went back and forth a lot, Billy, talking about what wines we were going to be drinking. And we had our kind of weekly newsletter update last Friday where we talked about, well, mentioned that we're drinking Lambrusco this weekend, which I ended up doing. But you had another experience this past weekend up in Oregon that maybe you wanted to share a little bit about. Yeah. Yeah. We just had a nice Oregon slash Washington, you know, right across the border there weekend started out i'll just kind of quickly run through it all we started out in portland which if anybody hasn't been there there's a a great selection of different wine bars we ended up at a place called bar norman great selection of natural wines got to taste a number of different producers there which was cool from a number of different regions moving from there the next day we actually went back and revisited our friends at granville got to show my my girlfriend some that beautiful view that we saw there and we tasted through their their portfolio again and i got a Bought a few bottles, their, their wines, everything was showing really well, including the Chardonnay. I ended up bringing home a bottle of the Chardonnay. We, we got a bottle of the Sparkling, the Blanc de Noir, and we also got a bottle of their Louis Pinot Noir. So so that was exciting. Great to be back there. It was kind of cool. We, the first time we we sat down with Jackson and got the, the family point of view, and it was great to hear another person's point of view of the, of the vineyard. It was their worker, Jacob, who also helps out in the winery. So it was really kind of Kind of cool to feel the passion there. Did you get to? Did you get to try? Did they pour the sparkling? I have it actually here. I have both the Chardonnay, the 2020 Usa Vineyard Chardonnay, and the Blanc de Noir 2017 Blanc de Noir here on my table. Did you get to we, try the 
the sparkling? We didn't at the winery, but I just bought a bottle and we had it, had it okay. one night. The Blanc de Noir, it was, it was cool. It was basically the rosé that they have um, mm-hmm. as the base. And then they, they use that and add a little bit of dosage. And it, it was really good. I, I'm excited to try their Blanc de Blanc just because I like their Chardonnay so much. But but I, I thought it was really neat, especially for Jackson's first time of making a sparkling. It was it was really good. Did he let you know when the Blanc de Blanc was going to be available? He said the fall. The fall. So it okay. should be September-ish. Yeah. 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 But yeah, and then that evening we did a, a dinner in the vines. This thing called Field and Vine sets up like an outdoor meal at a place called Laurel Ridge down in the Willamette. And that, that was pretty cool as well. We were right outside the winery, got to taste a few of their portfolios, basically more just like a rosé, uh, a Pinot Gris and uh, Pinot Noir. So kind of your quintessential Willamette experience. The food was really good out there in the vineyard and, and the wine was, the wine was pretty great. It's pretty good as well. I mean, I wouldn't say it was like, you know, anything outstanding, but we didn't really taste their, their full portfolio. They just kind of poured what they, they wanted to with dinner. So that was neat. And then we made our way up to Washington. We actually ended up staying in a, like a cabin on the Washington state side. In hindsight, we, next time we might stay in Hood River on the Oregon side. But yeah, we stayed in a cabin with like a detached bathroom. So a nice outhouse. Probably like <laughs> what you grew up with, Brady, <laughs> on the farm. <laughs> but yeah, it was actually part of an organic farm going down. They had sheep. The cows were in a pasture above us and a lot of animals around, which was really neat. But what was pretty cool was we ended up doing the Fruit Loop, which is this kind of loop of, I guess, cideries, wineries, and also just like orchards fruit producing regions by Mount Hood. And we tasted a couple wines from the Oregon side there. And then we went tasting at a place called Upside Down Wines, which was recommended by Jeff Andrews from Troth, who we've had on oh, cool. um, a bunch of podcasts ago. They actually yeah. sourced some of their fruit from the Andrews family vineyard out in that part of Washington. And what was really cool is, yes, the Horse Heaven Hills out that way. And we got to try a few wines from their fruit. And we tried a, a few from just there in the gorge. There are some vineyards that are not too far away. And we ended up with one really cool Syrah. He, they make two from upside down. And one was an artist series. And they get a special person to do a label each year. Yeah, it's I'm looking at this. Yeah, it's yeah. a beautiful bottle we got. But we tried there. We ended up with a bottle there, 2017 Syrah, which was mm-hmm. a smoky year. And it was like they had to do a lot of sorting and it was it was really interesting. It's a really dense, thick, meaty Syrah, which is really great. And then we tried another one of theirs, which has Syrah with, I think, 10 or 15 percent of Viognier. And it was really cool. It's almost like tasting the difference between like a Cornas and a, a Cote Roti that kind of one is like thick and dense and meaty because it's 100 percent Syrah and one has the, the lift of the Viognier. And uh, that was cool. I, I've always been a Washington State Syrah fan, but hadn't had many. And it was cool to kind of taste through that. We also had some white varietal Rhone wines while we were there, both Viognier and then like a, a Roussan. So uh, that was a really cool tasting. So it was kind of a, a nice change of pace from just doing the Willamette only. And you kind of got a sense of both sides. Is this upside down, all one word, upside down? I th- the website is, I think it, I think upside down is one word. Yeah. Okay. Okay, cool. Yeah. Look at these bottles now. That's awesome. Yeah, that's I, I I stand by that that like Pacific Northwest read you know both Washington and down into Willamette is yeah it has to be really underrated in terms of wine travel and wine tourism in the U.S. I know it's been picking up a lot but you know as much as people think about heading out to California or even like up to the Finger Lakes in New York I feel like 
maybe it's just being on the East Coast. I hear more people talk about those experiences than going out to Oregon and Washington. There definitely should be yeah, more more folks traveling out there because they're making some awesome wines and the view the views are, you know, match the quality of the wines, if not exceed them. It's incredible out there, some of the landscape and, and stuff. So and they're yeah. and they're true and they're true farmers, which mm-hmm. you know, sometimes the complaints when folks go to Napa are like, oh, it's too commercial, you know. Yeah, but up there in in those regions, it, it truly is when you go up to a producer, they're the ones doing all the work. They're, you know, they're farmers at heart, which I think adds a different element of authenticity and yeah, to, yeah. to the experience. So that that was what I was gonna add. You know, there are the Chateau Saint Michels of the world and some of the bigger producers based in Washington, mm-hmm. but it is really cool going even the bigger guys in the Willamette are small. And then here, you know, I, I reached out to Jeff at Troth to see if he had any recommendations because his family, you know, has been farming there for generations and he had multiple. And then he connected me with this Seth Kitsky, who not only has taken over and runs his family Kitsky Cellars, which is a small producer in Washington, he has his own upside down is kind of his own baby now that he's kind of separated. Mm-hmm. And that guy was so excited that I had asked to taste gorge wines, like Jeff had recommended to multiple wineries to me. But he's like, this guy specifically said, you know, if have him reach out directly to me. I'd love to have him taste our wine. So like, it's like this passion that you don't really get in kind of this personal touch. You know, he apologized. He, was, he wasn't able to be there because he had to be at a family event, but he's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I can't be there, but here's all, you know, these, all the wines and mm-hmm. you know, introduced me to a person there who walked us through the tastings who randomly was, had worked multiple vintages or worked at a winery with the guy who tasted us at Granville. They were friends. They were like, oh, nice, he tastes, nice. did Jake taste you? So it's kind of this cool community kind of vibe overall that it is it's nice to see it almost feels kind of more like a like a burgundy roan vibe not that i've ever mm-hmm. been to either one you've been to burgundy but that's kind of what i picture it's more of like a farmer's wine comes first and then they try to figure out how to sell it rather than let's start a commercial thing and feel out you know figure out how we can fill the wine bottles so it's cool yeah i think i was really that's interesting that you mentioned that i was so surprised when we went to burgundy that there wasn't even a, just a little bit more infrastructure than there was. I knew it was like still pretty old world and like not a lot had changed generally, but I thought there would be more infrastructure and there just wasn't. It was just, like you said, just farmers, <laughs> which is really cool, kind of refreshing coming from, you know, the the U.S. like consumer mentality. And I mean, you can have incredible experiences without all of the like commercial fluff. So yeah, that, that definitely hits home for me. Nice. I did. It was pretty... Pretty low key for me this weekend. We had always have a family party. My mom's side of the family always gets together, and I have a few answer into wine, but not into wine enough to like explore maybe to the depth that like you and I maybe tend to explore. And so it was cool to bring several different bottles of wine that you know I know they hadn't had before. I think we had wine from like Hungary and the Czech Republic, and then this Lambrusco, which they had never had uh, Lambrusco before, I don't believe. Maybe one of my aunts had, but it was actually my first time having Lambrusco and we've talked about it a lot. And I think we even talked about it on the podcast in the past. And so, yeah, that was an awesome experience. I really love sparkling during the summer. I I would almost drink sparkling every time I drank wine in the summertime. It's just great to get it really cold on a hot day. And, you know, these Lambruscos have a little bit of residual sugar to them. And so, you know, as we were talking a little bit offline, drinking it super cold, but you still get that acidity from the effervescence and, you know, the sparkling nature of the wine really helps to balance it out. And for me, I'm like, you know, 
unless it's a dessert wine and I know what I'm getting. I don't like a lot of RS, but this was really awesome. I would buy cases and cases of this to drink all summer. And at just eight and a half percent, it's definitely, you know, easy, easy on your stomach. Doesn't wear you out when it's 95, 97 degrees and, you know, in central Maryland. So, yeah, but, uh, but, you know, we're warning to our listeners, as we mentioned before, I would go to like a wine shop or a wine specialty store and get your mm-hmm. Lambrusco and probably ask the person who's working there because there will yeah. be different levels of alcohol. There'll be different levels of sugar. And what most people knew in America for a long time at the grocery store was just, you know, really cheap, sweet, bubbly kind of reddish wine. <laughs> but there you can get them with layers of complexity and this, this nuance that actually make them not only refreshing, but delicious. So yeah, so make sure you, you're particular. Do you remember the type of grape or wine that you had from Hungary or the Czech Republic? Hungary, it was, I actually have it down in my fridge right now. It's a Pinot Noir from Hungary. Mm-hmm. And the Czech Republic was something natural and orange. Nice. Trying to remember what the grape was. But that was cool because my aunts had never had an orange wine either. I guess they do like you know, orange pet nat. Is that like a like a thing? Yeah, yeah. It's very much a thing. Yeah, I guess that's what yeah. it was. That's definitely your world. That was, this is maybe like my first of that wine. But yeah, that was that was basically what it was. We actually finished it up last night. The last night was kind of an extension because we finished up that wine. But we had like some German bratwurst and sauerkraut and potatoes. And we finished up that wine, which was awesome. And we had a, a Riesling um, Stein, the producer. If you ever had those Rieslings, I'm also I'm kind of that rambling was, now. It was mostly. No, that's cool. Yeah, no, I, I would say we had a a member of the Vint community, and we'll give him a shout out, Scott Pittock. I hope I'm saying your name right, either Pittock or Pittock. He reached out in our at the wineadvent.co email address, which everybody, oh, yeah. if they ever have wine questions, feel free to reach out. And he asked a few questions about what I would recommend for Hit Fourth of July weekend to kind of introduce non-wine drinkers to wine. And, you know, we, we had a range of suggestions, but orange wine was kind of on his list too. Well, it was on the one of the lists I recommended and he thought he might kind of go with that. And it's, it's an interesting option because I, I've had a lot of beer drinkers tell me, depending on the orange wine, that it, it kind of reminds them of beer. It has some sort of beer essence. Sometimes that's because they're unfiltered. Some can be yeastier, but that's, it's kind of a cool thing to show people. And, you know, it's not for everyone. Number one, number two, the, the wines, the styles of skin contact wines vary so much. So I'll tell everyone again, if you try one and you don't like it, don't, stop trying them, keep trying until you kind of find one you like, but I would always ask them for their, their recommendation there too, but it's a cool style and it's, it's fun. Yeah. I was going to mention too, that, you know, if you have, if you're going to a family gathering with family members who, well, I should say, I'll just keep it local. My family, I have some family members that hate drinking wine under or over like 45, 50 degrees. So, you know, folks are always willing to put like ice cubes in their wine and stuff. And so having something like a Lambrusco with some effervescence and some RS was like, fine, like put it in your cup, put some ice over it. Like that's awesome. So if you have, if you have folks that tend to do that to their wine, Lambrusco or some of those others, sparkling wines can be a, can be a good way to, to sneak it by them. Yeah. And one, one last note on that front is I have found that there are certain people and even people who drink wine, like are really set in their ways or they know what they like. And they're like, I like wine either from here or I like this Mm -hmm. producer. But if you get something that's so obscure, like they have no frame of reference and they're actually more open to try it like 
you know, more open-mindedly and they'll try it and they'll be like, oh, this is actually really good because they don't have anything. Because sometimes people immediately like compare it to their favorite version of X. Like if you just give them a Pinot Noir or a cab. So it's kind of cool sometimes to go completely off the map and just see what they think. And sometimes they like it, sometimes they don't, but it provides a more, you know, kind of objective point of view on it. So it's yeah, cool. that's, that's a great point. That's awesome. Very good. Well, on the, the back half of this episode, we have other conversation mentioning a lot of Vint users this episode. We have a conversation with Vint users, Chris and Amy Hammer-Huber, who purchased one of our NFTs uh, a while back, NFT comp- or compilation or partnership that we did with Emmett Scorson out in the collaboration. Yeah, collaboration. What did I say? Composition. <laughs> this, this way, Brusco is getting to me. It was a collaboration with Emmett Scorson up in the North Coast, Sonoma Valley. And they went out for a wine dinner with Emmett Scorson. Had some awesome experiences out there. So we're excited to chat with them. Stay on and listen to that interview. Here we are. Thanks, guys. Cheers. We're really glad to have Chris and Amy Hammer-Huber on the podcast today. Chris and Amy are, I'd say, borderline super fans of the Vint podcast and of the Vint platform in general. Chris and I have a lot of conversations, and it's really great to have both of them on the podcast today to talk about Vint, but also more so to talk about our NFT project which they purchased one of our NFTs recently. And I know it's been a few episodes since we've discussed Vince NFT initiative with Emmett Scorson, but I'll let Billy intro that. And then we'll dive into a conversation with Chris and Amy about what that experience has been like. Yeah. So just a little reminder, our NFT was basically a series of three different NFTs with Emmett Scorson, a winery based in Sonoma, but also producing Napa wines. We just a little bit about the origin about how the project came about. We had been up visiting Palmer, Palmer Emmett, who's half of the Emmett Scorson team. And we were just kind of tasting his wines, talking about how we could work together. And he expressed some interest in NFTs. He's he's friends with Gary Vaynerchuk. And as everyone knows, Gary Vaynerchuk is very into NFTs. So he was interested in trying to see how how wine could play a role in that. So we worked with him to put together an NFT that gave the owner's rights to some library wines from their collection, a private tasting in person, a tour of the winery, a virtual tasting, as well as a kind of all-inclusive wine dinner that they would set up with, you know, chef preparing food and having a lot of the Emmett Scorson wines. These wines con- consisted, or the NFTs consisted of access to not only library wines, but their their some of their original releases or their top Napa wine. So two of the wines came from Beckstoffer Vineyards. One came from the famous Tokalon Vineyard, the other from their George III Vineyard. And then the other came from the Alexander Valley Ellis Alden Vineyard, which is a really special part uh, parcel in Sonoma and really close to the Judge Palmer brand, which is Emmett Scorestone's kind of high-end Cabernet brand and uh, the Emmett Scorestone winery as a whole. Yeah, Chris, did you just want to give us a little bit of background on how you found out about Vint initially, and then also what it, you know uh, this NFT experience? What was it like acquiring the NFT? And I know it was kind of in the early days of Vint that we launched that. Um, well, Vint, I found I was looking for alternative investments for my IRA and other portfolio, and you know did a little research on my own, looking at some different assets and. Wine came up as one of them, and I looked at you know some of the other alternatives of buying the wine, storing it at home, and I, I wasn't necessarily interested in that because I figured we'd probably drink it too early and it wouldn't be an investment then; it'd be you know uh, something we'd enjoy. 
So then I ran across your platform, did some research, reached out to you guys about it and have been an investor in the platform, you know, buying different collections over time. And so I think, you know, this doing that and then through the podcast, I think that's how I got introduced to the NFT idea. I believe Billy did a video with Emmett where he went through the winery and talked about it. And after watching that, I was like, I have to do this. So the next step was to talk to Amy and say, you know, we've been talking about doing something, getting away. And we've always gone to wine country. I went there on my spring break doing my master's degree in 92, 30 years ago. We've gone there on our honeymoon in 98, and we've gone back three or four times since. So it's a, it's a place we love. It's a place we know. It's a place we enjoy. So it's like, this is perfect. And it gives us the opportunity to discover something new. So I had a discussion with her about it, going back and forth. And of course, it was like, what the heck's an NFT? Why do we need to buy this to do it? But, you know, eventually we decided, let's do it. Yeah. Amy, walk us through when you first got down there to the property. I mean, I know you guys built kind of a trip around this experience, but what was it like when you first got down to the property? What was kind of on the docket when you started exploring? We started at one of our favorite places in the south end of Napa at Cuvesan, which is a place that we went to on our honeymoon. And it was always enjoyable to just start there with a relaxing tasting. And so we did that first. And then the following day, Tuesday, we had the honor of going up to that winery that Palmer took us to where it's up on a hill and unbelievable, beautiful. In fact, he said that he doesn't take people up there. I think we are the only people he's taken up there other than his photographer. So we felt really honored to, to have that privilege. He poured us a glass of the Sauvignon Blanc as, and we got to drink that as we were walking through those grapevines. And that was pretty special too. So other than the little bit of a bumpy ride up there, <laughs> definitely yeah. true. So that was awesome. We, we talk a lot. I think we talk a lot on the podcast, but just in generally in general on our team about tying experiences to this idea of investing in wine. And we've mentioned it before that it's, it's really hard to justify, you know, 20, 30, $40,000 for a bottle, just for the juice that's inside the bottle, but really tying when we can have these experiences and provide these experiences to investors. I think that it helps to link for people, the idea of history and experience with these brands that ends up driving up investment prices over time. For instance, this, the Ellis Alden Vineyard, the wines that came with that NFT, it was a 2013, which happens to be one of the top rated vintages in the North coast over the last 10 years, but I think maybe going back even almost 20 years, Robert Parker gave that particular vintage a 98 rating, and that only rivals the 2016 vintage. So some awesome wines that came with this NFT, but Chris, talk about the experience side and you know, maybe let's go into the wine dinner and what else was included in that experience. Well, I mean, the part of it was we met Palmer in the morning and we got to sit with him for 20, 25 minutes on the ride up to the vineyard, got to talk about him, his business, his philosophy and so forth. Then we strolled through the vineyards, like Amy said, and got to see him in the place that he considers sacred ground. He actually told us he met his wife there. And then, you know, obviously we've got another 25 minute ride back. So if you want to talk about experiences, you know, when you go to Napa, normally you can talk to the staff that, you know, pours the wine for you and tells you about it. But we got to spend a couple hours with the person who's actually built the winery, made all the decisions on what wines to make and why and so forth. So you got 
unbelievable insight into a person and their business and their philosophy that, you know, we'll never be able to replace that. So that alone was probably worth all of it was just to get, you know, that experience. And then the wine dinner was, we didn't want to do them back to back. So he scheduled it for the Friday night of the 4th of July weekend. I guess he had other friends and wine circle members that were in the dinner. So that was in downtown Healdsburg at the Matheson, which I believe is a newer restaurant, but with a renowned chef. And it was just unbelievable. I think it was a four course meal and everyone was paired with their wines. The two highlights of that were he did a horizontal of the Beckstoffer George the Third Cabernet, 2011, 2012, 2013. And then Michael, his partner and winemaker, poured his first wine that he made on his own, a 2007 Pinot Noir, that's kind of like his private stash that he doesn't let anybody have. He let us taste that as well. And that was just unbelievable. So, you know, again, from an experience perspective, those are things that we will never forget and they'll be with us forever. And, you know, we're definitely going to be lifelong customers as well of of them. Yeah, that's awesome. I've heard him talk a lot about that vineyard, the one up there in Alexander Valley. And now I really, I really want to go. I'm jealous you guys were able to get up there, but it sounds like a, a magical place. It's were you guys there early enough in the morning? Cause he's always talks about how it, it's either above, it's above the fog line. So if you look down, you know, it always gets that extra sun. So things ripen really well up there. Or were you guys there just kind of, I guess it was maybe the afternoon when the fog had burned off already. Well, we were there late morning. So I believe the fog had burned off, but from our hotel room, every morning we woke up, we could look out the balcony and I could see the fog and I pointed it out to Amy and I said, this is what they talk about. Every morning there's the fog mm-hmm. and then by 11, it burns off. And by the time we got up there, it was after that. Uh, but he did point out as we were driving along, it, you know, they're replanting some of the vineyards up there. And he said, this is a lower vineyard. This one gets too much fog. So it didn't allow the grapes to grow as well. So they were going to replant it. So we kind of could see, you know, once we were there, we could see the lay of the land and you could definitely understand why he was saying this one is high above the fog. Cause it literally was the highest point around that you could see where grapes were being grown. So I think in the story with you, Billy, you said, you know, Palmer and Michael were at the bottom and they said, which vineyard do you want? And he said, Michael just pointed up to the highest one. Mm-hmm. I can totally see that now after you go there because it truly is like way up there compared to everything else. So to be able to hear the story and now to see the story, you know, that was special for us. That's awesome. Yeah. No. And then the, the dinner, I guess I'll just say again, I'm jealous of you guys for that one too. I, I ran into Palmer actually in Charleston in May and we, we were able to catch up and grab some dinner together. And he was describing what, what you guys were going to be kind of tasting in the food. And it sounded like a, a great experience. So I'm glad it, it played out that way in reality. Yeah, I mean, I resonate too with, with what Chris was saying about being able to actually see the lay of the land. I mean, you can talk all day about terroir and elevation, these kinds of things. But until you go to the actual site and see like uh, the orientation of the hills, and understand how big of a difference elevation makes when you actually see fog settling down at the base of a mountain. I think that those experiences really put some of this into context and it makes you understand and helps to understand why some vineyards are just so much more revered than others. You know, they may be not, not too far from one another, right? But one may stand out because of some of those ge- geographical reasons. 
Amy, you mentioned the first part of your trip, how you kind of had different experiences sandwiched on either side of the experiences at Emmett Scorson. Talk to us about some of the other highlights of your trip up to Sonoma. I know that Chris had mentioned that you visited Donlin as well, which we've had Cushing Donlin on our podcast in the past and who is a fan of the platform. So it was cool to hear some of those paths crossing. We did. We really enjoyed our visit there. We had a really great tasting with the winemaker who's extremely knowledgeable and was generous enough to explain a lot of things. So we had a better understanding of, of just in general, the winemaking process. And I can't remember the type of wine that he was talking about, but he said he goes so far as sometimes to just take the grapes off of the one side of a vine because they get the right amount of sun and the backside needs to sit a little bit longer or something like that. So it was just really interesting to hear a lot of the things that he had to say. And they make a really yummy Syrah, which we enjoyed several of. So that was fun. Another highlight was going to Bohem, which is an Occidental. They make a really great Pinot Noir. Uh, we stopped there twice, actually. <laughs> so that was great. We, we got to talk to the owner and winemaker there as well. So we had a lot of great wine, but we also had a lot of opportunity to talk to some people you wouldn't normally get to talk to. You know, as Chris said, you normally talk to a salesperson, right? person who pours the wine and, and asks, how did you like that? But to have that opportunity to talk with some owners and specific winemakers was really pretty special and enjoyable for both of us to learn a lot about the whole process and of course, be able to enjoy some of the yummy wines as well. So... That's awesome. We've heard a lot, in, I think, in the marketplace generally about NFTs, and it's not always that NFTs kind of pay out their value, but it sounds like the experience that you had, especially being able to kind of pair the experience at Emmett Square Zone with some other maybe now favorite producers, definitely made the value of that NFT worth it, would you say? Oh, multiples of worth, definitely. Yeah, no doubt about it. Yeah, we still have one left, right, Billy? Do you want to talk a little bit about the remaining NFT that we have at what's well, actually a different platform or website that we've built outside of our Vint platform, but it's VintNFTs.com. Billy, do you want to discuss that? Yeah. Yeah. So if you go to VintNFTs.com, we still have the 2011 Judge Palmer George's III NFT available, which Chris actually just mentioned they were able to try a horizontal of that there their last meal. And yeah, it's, it's not, you don't actually have to pay with, well, it, it is crypto. Technically it's, it's USDC, it's $675, but we also can work with anybody to send us money, whether it be via Zelle or Venmo or something and help them transfer the, the NFT over. So it doesn't necessarily have to be through a crypto platform, but we do have one remaining and we can work with Palmer to set up an experience for, for anybody else who wants to go out there and and really experience Sonoma the way that Chris and Amy were able to. Yeah, and I would say if somebody doesn't buy that in the next couple of weeks, I'll probably buy it. But I think Amy and I talked about it. You know, we want someone else to have that same experience we had. So hopefully somebody takes advantage of that. <laughs> I appreciate that one there. I hope, <laughs> you know, always being unselfish is good. So hopefully somebody takes you up on it. 
Chris, what are some of the other experiences you guys have had around wine? You said that you were back, you were in Napa as early or as far back as your high school graduation, which was like, you know, seven to 10 years ago. <laughs> well, in high school, I couldn't drink. So it was for my high school, college. Yeah. It, was, it was for my master's degree on spring break. I had a friend who lived in Los Gatos at the time. And so he invited us out for our spring break. And then we went up to wine country. So that was my first exposure. And that was 30 years ago. So it was a while ago. And what kind of, you know, just like night to night, do you guys typically find yourselves drinking wine or has, in terms of your introduction to vent, would you have called your yourselves wine enthusiasts before you were introduced to Vint or did it kind of happen the opposite way? Oh, why don't you go with that one, Amy? I have at least a nice glass of red wine every night, I think, as I make dinner that usually trans over to dinner. Uh, but my aunt and uncle were very big wine lovers and shared that love with me initially and then with Chris and me. We went out to Napa and wine country with them a year after we got married and just were able to enjoy that with them. So we've been drinkers of good red wine, especially, but all the wines for quite a few number of years. We also raised a family and in the middle there, and that sometimes will make for the need to decrease that a little bit. But we're back to the point where our kids are getting out on their own and we're really looking forward to being able to enjoy not just drinking wine, but wine experiences, wine and food, and playing around with a little bit of that. Do you guys have any favorite regions outside of Sonoma and Napa that you either drink regularly or like to kind of learn about or explore producers in? Well, of late through work, we've kind of come to know in our local area here, a distributor who distributes Italian wines. Mm. So up until a year ago, I don't know if I've ever had an Italian wine that I knew of, but of late, he's kind of been introducing us to different ones. And so we kind of started to get that bug of, you know, drinking and tasting those and realizing that there's some great wine from Italy that we had no idea about. So Hopefully at some point we'll be able to do a full circle on that too and go out there and, you know, find an experience in Italy. So if you guys ever do an Italy NFT, let us know, because that would be awesome. (laughs) We certainly will. Yeah. There's, I think, I think the stat is something like over a thousand native varietals of grapes to Italy. So you guys could be on quite the rabbit hole there. (laughs) That's what he said. said. There's more varieties of grapes in Italy than anywhere else in the world. So. Yeah, there's certain there's certainly some gems. I would I would say follow his his guidance. Start with you know some of the the main regions, but there's definitely worth working down into some of the the smaller, lesser known ones. I know I know we found a few. I think my significant other and I we're going to be going to stop by Friuli in August, and there's some Friulian wines that I had never even heard of until like last year that are now some of our favorites. So, and Michael, the winemaker at Emmett Scorzone. He's Italian heritage and he has, you know, one of the other brands they have is that Domenica Amato. And one of the mm-hmm. reasons why he started that brand, I think, was because his family drank a lot of Italian wine and they enjoyed it and he enjoyed it. And so he wants to make it. So if you look at that brand, they're doing a lot of Italian varietals there too. So that, you know, we talked a lot about Judge Palmer, but that brand too, we tried some of his Gusto Russo and some of these others and they were all fabulous too. So I think that's, 
will be helpful that, you know, we'll have his connection there too. Oh yeah, for sure. I know he has a Fiano. I can't remember all of the other ones, but uh, yeah, Fiano is one of those. It's one of the, the, what they say are three or four ageable white varietals from, from Italy that are very widespread. So I think that's definitely a cool starting place. And he's definitely a good resource to have because he's not too many generations removed from Italy himself. Yeah. I think we had the Fiano at the wine dinner, I believe. Oh, nice. Yeah. It's a, it's a excellent food wine. The one that they have in particular as well. Yeah. I think that this, you know, explanation or, you know, sharing about these experiences really typifies how we want people to be able to experience wine and the wine world through event. You know, we are certainly a financial product and want people to think of this asset class as a, you know, a legitimate financial asset and something that they can keep in their portfolio for a long time. But ultimately, we also are wine people and we want, especially Billy and I, we want to introduce people to new experiences. I think that, you know, you guys are a great example of bringing the two worlds of finance and wine enthusiasm together. So yeah, I appreciate you guys sharing your experience with us. I'm excited that maybe we can turn Vinton to just a kind of a a travel agency for for our (laughs) most engaged investors. That'd be a lot of fun. I'm in. Uh, Yeah. Well, thank you guys. Thank you so much for one, for purchasing the NFT and supporting the project that you know, out of Emmett Scorsone, we were happy to help them get, get that NFT off the ground. And and certainly, yeah, if, if we're not able to unload the third NFT, which hopefully someone listening will, you know, get excited about taking up that experience, we might have you on again to talk about your second time out there. Right. Yeah. And we had the wine at the wine dinner. It was excellent. So you're going to get three oh, the bottles. 2013. Yeah, that's right. You're going to get three bottles of the 11. That probably alone is worth it right there. Yeah, it was the 2011 George's you guys had now did you tell the difference in vintage variation between the three like were they were they distinctly different or did they kind of have that a a similar thread running through them yes and yes I would say they were they were all different but you could tell it was the same wine and even Palmer was tasting it with us and he you know he has the background he said the 2011 and the 2013 were a little bit more problematic vintages to get mm-hmm. through. The 2012 was like easy vintage, no issues. But he said, you know, his comment was, it's amazing how the difference is between them. So the easy vintage maybe isn't aging as well as the other two are. And so that was interesting observation from him. who He's been involved with it day one. But Amy and I both, I think, if I'm, tell me if I'm not correct, Amy, we both love the 2011 and the 2013. And then the 2012 came in a close third. But yeah, it was, they were, they were all very good, but they were all had their subtle differences. Awesome. Cool. Yeah. Right. Thanks guys. We're, we're definitely going to continue to be in touch. Chris, it's always great to talk to you. Amy, it's great to meet you. It's cool that we get to engage with our investors this way. And we hope to have more folks on the podcast who, you know, have had these experiences and others. So thank you all. Hope you have a great day. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. For questions, comments, or feedback on the Vent podcast, please email us at support at vent.co. To check out our current offerings and to sign up for the Vent platform, find us at www.vent.co. That's www.vint.co. Vint and VV Markets are offering securities pursuant to Regulation A. 
Our offering circular as amended can be found on the SEC website. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investments such as those on the Vent platform are speculative and involve substantial risks to consider before investing. We may provide communication that may contain certain forward-looking statements that are subject to various risks and uncertainties. Information provided in any communications is not legal, business, or tax advice. All prospective investors should consult a legal tax or business advisor concerning the subject matter of any communications and any offering.